So please open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Revelation being the last book of the Bible. And last week we finished in uh, verse 12 concerning the saints being Jewish saints during the tribulation which keep the commandments of God like Acts 1 to Acts 15 and the faith of Jesus. The latter of course is what saved them and the latter of course is what saves us. You can argue that once you are saved you keep the commandments of God but keeping the commandments of God per se will not save anyone. So let's start today's broadcast, if we may, from Revelation 14, verse 13, please. And I heard a voice from heaven, saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labours, and their works do follow them. As far as I know, from chapter 14, right up until chapter 22, no one else gets saved. This is very much a point of no return. You've had the two witnesses sent to earth to preach. Could be Moses, could be Elijah. You've had the 144,000 Jewish male virgins from the 12 tribes of Israel, giving us 144,000 sent to preach uh, to those on the earth. You've had the Antichrist put the two witnesses to death. You've had Christ rapture the 144,000, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. So at this point... In time, there's no more second chances. You've had three and a half years to get right with the Lord. And because people love darkness rather than light, because people hate God, because people love their sin, they're going to get what they have always wanted. So once we are raptured, uh, Revelation 4, for a period of time, there'll be absolute darkness on the earth until the two witnesses arrive and the 144,000. But once... Both groups have been removed from the earth. There is a period of absolute darkness. You're going to have Satan manifest in the flesh, the Antichrist, of course, and he will enslave people. The Church of Rome will think that he is the Christ, the Messiah. The Jews will think he is the long-awaited Messiah. The Muslims will gravitate to him along with the Buddhists, the Freemasons, so on and so forth. But, of course, we know that he is the son of perdition, and his purpose is quite simply to destroy people. It's like that old expression goes, you get the governments that you deserve. Much truth in that. And if you turn down the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll get the Antichrist instead. Now, anti means a number of things. First of all, it means in the place of, it means against, and it means also the same type of person. So one more time, anti can mean against, it can mean instead of, and it can also mean a duplication of. The Catholic Church believe that their priests are little Christs. But as Bible believers, we not only have the Son of God as our Saviour, we have the Son of God living within us. On top of that, we have the Holy Ghost and God the Father. We are a blessed people. We are a royal priesthood. And yet that gets overlooked by many people. But here you've got from verse 13, and I'll read it again. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, John speaking, Write, inspiration, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. So anyone that got saved pre-chapter 14 and dies after chapter 14. So again, anyone who gets saved pre-chapter 14 and dies after chapter 14 are blessed. But no one gets saved, as far as I can tell, after chapter 14. Blessed, happy, fortunate are you, going back to chapter 1, verses 2, 3, and 4, how you are blessed if you 
read the Word of God. You are blessed if you hear the Word of God. So if you can't read, you can always uh, listen to audio recordings of the Bible. You are blessed. You receive a blessing for reading the Word of God. And here John makes it very clear how they are blessed which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labours, and their works do follow them. So what happens is this. A person who gets saved in the tribulation and dies in the tribulation is going to be judged for their works at the great white throne judgment. That's why it speaks about those whose names are written in the book of life and those whose names are not written in the book of life. And most believers think that when they die, they are going to be resurrected to be judged at the great white throne judgment. That is incorrect. According to John 5.24, uh, Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 4, when we get saved, we are already in the heavenly places, ruling in a spiritual sense with the Lord Jesus Christ. When we get saved, we were judged, past tense, back at Calvary. We've had our judgment. All of our sins were put on the cross of Christ. What happens for us, of course, is that we go to the judgment seat of the Lord, where we are judged for our works, not our salvation. But you see, the rapture has occurred, Revelation 4, verses 1, 2, and 3, and therefore the church age has ended. We are now in Daniel's 70th week. We are now in the Great Tribulation. And therefore, anyone who gets saved from, say, Revelation 5 onwards, right up until Revelation 14, should they die, and of course many will die, uh, refusing to take the mark of the beast, they are going to be awaiting their rewards at the great white throne judgment. But they too, as far as I can ascertain from scripture, go straight to be with the Lord. I remember some years ago, someone sent me an email. It was a apologetical ministry in the UK. And this person thought they were doing me a favor by pointing out that one of my friends on his website had a statement that uh, made the case for those of us which are saved, that when we die, that somehow we sleep. And I looked at this friend's website and I could see straight away that he was in error. He thought, like most people think, that when a saved person dies, their soul sleeps. It's actually your body that sleeps, not your soul. And I got back to this uh, apologetical ministry and I thanked this person for pointing out to me my friend's error. And I said to this uh, ministry that, yes, it was wrong. It was an incorrect view to hold. And yet most Christians hold to such a view. And this person made the case to me that my friend was somehow a heretic. And I said, no, he's not a heretic. He's a saved man, but he's got it wrong. It's a, th you know, it's a simple thing to do. He thought that the soul sleeps upon death when in fact it's the body it's the body that sleeps upon death. And of course, the Seventh-day Adventists come along and they also teach such a doctrine and it's called soul sleep. But I got back to this ministry and said, listen, I know it's wrong and I will you know, approach my friend down the line and hopefully put him straight. But here from 13, 14, you've got those that die in the Lord. It's a great scripture, in the Lord. You're either in the Lord or you're not. You're either saved or unsaved. You're either redeemed or not that they may rest from their labours. So their bodies are going to sleep. Their bodies are going to await the rapture, where they get glorified bodies. And their works do follow them, great white throne judgment. Now for those of us which are saved today, we have the ability to get five crowns. I think it's very rare for those of us living in the West to get probably half of that, but not impossible. 
But for those in the tribulation, they are a special class of people. And over in Hebrews, it speaks about those that want a better resurrection. Those that lived awful lives, very difficult lives, lived in very dangerous countries. And as a result, when they are resurrected, they get a better resurrection, better rewards. So what you can't get from verse 13 is soul sleep. What you get from Revelation 13, excuse me, Revelation 14, 13 is the body sleeping. And again, this is not in reference to those of us which are saved today. Paul would tell us that once we die, we are absent from the body and present, like right away with the Lord. That's a great teaching. In fact, if people got that down, it would annihilate purgatory. In fact, 14, 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, going into verse 6, you've got the 144,000 removed from the earth, and they completely bypass purgatory, because purgatory, of course, does not exist. Absent from the body, present with the Lord, from 2 Corinthians 5, 8, from memory. But look at verse 14, from Revelation chapter 14, please. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud... And upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. A golden crown pictures deity, of course. And I will say this, that the next six verses or so are very difficult to exegete, very difficult to explain clearly. And I spent the last few days trying to understand such verses. And I take this book to be literal, I don't spiritualize the book of Revelation. I made that very clear many studies ago when we first started this book at the back end of last year. I take this to be literal. So let's take a bit more time with this. And I looked and behold a white cloud, very reminiscent from the book of Daniel and also Matthew 24 when Christ comes back. It speaks about those seeing the sign of the Son of Man in the clouds. And upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man. Christ, of course, having on his head a golden crown. Take it literally, don't spiritualize it. And in his hand, a sharp sickle. Now, when you get to the term for sharp sickle, or sickle, which incidentally is going to be mentioned seven times over the next few verses, you are dealing with some kind of a razor-sharp carved steel or iron blade. And as such, it's going to be used for swift and devastating judgment keep this in mind if you will up until this time in scripture you've had the plagues sent from heaven you've had the uh, continents shrinking you've had uh, people wanting to take their own lives you've had people that have been put to death and i estimate around two billion people have probably died around this time in the great tribulation and yet when the messiah arrives chapter 14 and if you get a chance, cross-references to chapter 19, there are going to be another batch of people put to death, like around 200 million. Also, keeps in mind, if you will, that chapter 14 is yet another ending from Revelation. I think there are at least four endings to the book of Revelation found in Revelation. So let me just clarify that. There are four aspects to the second coming of Christ. You've got when Christ comes the first time, four Gospels, four writers writing about the first coming of the Lord. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Whereas John, one writer, will write about the Lord's coming from four different perspectives. On top of that, we look at this from the perspectives of progressive revelation. For example, Paul the Apostle would write about the Antichrist 
and the third temple. But only John would write about the false prophet. Only John would write about the mark of the beast. And only John would write about the multiple plagues, which goes back to, as I say, progressive revelation, which also feeds into no one man getting all of the glory. That shows that the Lord was very specific in not allowing one person to get all of the glory. And yet, if you look at the Church of Rome today, they have one leader over several hundred million people. And of course, I am speaking about the Pope. There's no democracy in the Catholic Church. There's no pooling of resources. There's no sharing or uh, giving the Lord glory. It all goes back to the Pope. So here, you've got the Son of Man, Messiah, coming on a white cloud with a sharp sickle in his hand. He's going to destroy people. He's going to punish evildoers. And yet, if you were to contact 10 churches in your town, here's a challenge for you, and ask such churches to exegete Revelation 14, 14, you'll be completely shocked at what most of them would come back to you with. They would probably spiritualize this, or they would say, well... John was giving you his opinion. They wouldn't do what I'm about to do today. Keep your hand in Revelation 14 and go to Zechariah. It was Luther who said when it comes to reading the word of God that to correctly interpret the word of God, you need to go to the word of God. Scripture with scripture. And that is very much the case. Also referred to from 1 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 2 from memory. Zechariah 14, Zechariah 14, look at verse 4, please. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward the south. Concerning Christ, of course, his feet are going to split the Mount of Olives, literally, now, if you spiritualize this, and most do, you miss out on a great blessing. And on top of that, I think you are probably guilty of spiritual homicide. Because you are not only robbing the Lord of his glory, but at the same time you are shortchanging people when it comes to such an incredible piece of scripture. Look at verse 5, please. And he shall flee to the valley of the mountains. For the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azel. Yea, ye shall flee like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come, and all his saints with thee. Did you get that? And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains. Matthew 24. If you are on a rooftop, come down. If you are here or there, flee to the hills. If you are worshipping on the Sabbath, very Jewish, not Gentile, go here or go there. And here... This is speaking to Jews in the tribulation. Yea, ye shall flee like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Go back to the Old Testament if you want more light on this piece of scripture. But look at this. Colon. And the Lord my God, Jehovah God, shall come. Great picture for the deity of the Lord and all the saints with thee. Now, I hold to a pre-tribulation rapture. I make no apologies for that. And people say that the church is going to go through the tribulation. Okay, if that's the case, how does this work? How does it work that the church goes through the tribulation and yet somehow come back with the, with the Lord at the end of the tribulation? 
If the church goes through the tribulation, how can it be possible that the church returns with the Lord at the end of the tribulation? When I get to Revelation 19, I will further discuss that. It, of course, is impossible. And the Lord my God, Jehovah God, concerning Christ Jesus, a great verse for his deity, shall come. Second coming, not the rapture, and all the saints with thee. You can't miss it. Go back to Revelation, please. Revelation chapter 14. This is a Jewish book. And I have to keep saying that and also reminding myself. And therefore, we as Gentile believers, we as a church are grafted in. We are very much blessed, but the root is Jewish. We are the branches. We are grafted in. We get a look in, if you will. So here from Revelation 14, 14, you've got Christ coming back, referred to as Jehovah God. And he has a sharp sickle. He's going to execute his enemies. He's going to split the Mount of Olives. He's going to punish those that refuse to believe on him. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. He's going to destroy those that took the mark of the beast. He's going to destroy those that egged on the execution of the two witnesses. He's going to punish those that martyred, murdered his apostles and co. Revelation 14, look at verse 15 please and another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud thrust in thy sickle and reap for the time has come for thee to reap for the harvest of the earth is ripe now it seems to me that this angel is probably concerning christ now jesus christ is spoken of as being the angel of the lord and if you missed it the way that christ is portrayed throughout the book of revelation is very reminiscent to how he was portrayed back in the gospels in submission to his father my father is greater than i uh paul would speak about how it wasn't unacceptable for christ to humble himself how it he didn't think it robbery to be made equal with his father how he emptied himself and hence the holy ghost comes along and anoints him this is a picture of christ the servant he hasn't yet got his crown he hasn't yet got his throne He's very much on the cusp of receiving his long-awaited kingdom. And here, 14, son of man, 15, angel, working hand in hand. And this angel from 15 comes out of the temple, third heaven, not the earth. Crying with a loud voice, he can't miss it. Thrust in thy sickle and reap. In other words, get ready to put people down like 200 million. For the time has come for thee to reap. For the harvest of the earth is ripe. Don't spiritualize this. Just take it as it is. Just close your eyes if you need to and think about this for a few moments. Christ is coming back to punish evildoers. He's coming back to take the earth from the devil. 16. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth. And the earth was reaped. Keep your hand there and go to Isaiah 26. And I will say again that these verses are very difficult to, I think, really drill into. And I will do my best over the next little while to try and explain what we are reading and hopefully, Lord willing, conclude uh, today's chapter. But the best way to, I guess, understand the Old Testament is the New Testament. And the best way to understand the New Testament is, of course, uh, with the Old Testament. So the Old Testament points to the New Testament. And the New Testament points back to the Old Testament. Isaiah 26. Isaiah 26. Look 
at verse 20, please. Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers, and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment, until the indignation be overpassed. Let's break this down. Come, my people, historically the Jews, spiritually the church. Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers. Picture the rapture. And shut thy doors about thee. Make your calling and election sure. Make sure you are saved. Make sure you have appropriated the atonement. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment, like seven years, comma, until the indignation be overpassed, great white throne judgment. So again, the church is not going to be on the earth during the great tribulation. The church, referred to here as my people, has been removed. Look at verse 21. For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood, and shall no more cover her slain. Lord, uppercase, referring to Jehovah God. Over in the Gospel of John, I think it's chapter 20 from memory, Thomas comes into contact with the Lord Jesus Christ after his death on a cross. And he says, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. And Christ says to Thomas, how dare you say that? No, he doesn't. He commends him for saying that. Because Christ is Lord and God. Christ is Jehovah. For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. Heaven, of course, the earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. This is about as graphic as it can possibly get. Go back to Revelation chapter 14. And again, if you don't believe me, take the time to contact churches in your area and ask them to explain such a passage to you they will fail miserably and i'm not saying that to make fun of such people i'm saying that because it is so revelation 14 look at verse 18 please and another angel came out from the temple which had power over fire and cried with a loud voice to him that had the sharp sickle saying thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe Now, the more I read this, the more I try to understand what is going on. And I have this picture of Christ coming back, first of all, on a cloud, later on a horse, to take back the earth for himself. But like every victory, whether it is Napoleon or Wellington or Montgomery or Patton or Collins from the... uh, Gulf War or Schwarzkopf from the first Gulf War there are always casualties, fatalities and when we look at fatalities or uh, collateral damage as they refer to it we see many people losing their lives as a result of a war, a conflict and here you've got the earth is fully ripe for destruction but go back to the sickle The sharp sickle is some kind of a harvesting tool with a razor-sharp carved steel or iron blade of some sort and a wooden handle. It is used to pretty much not only rip up the, the, the weeds, but to put one's garden, if you will, in order. I'm not much of an authority when it comes to agricultural aspects. I will say that, so forgive my analogy if it's not particularly clear. But what I want to try and do is pull these verses together. In fact, look at verse 19, and I'll come back. 
And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered a vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Keep your hand there, and go to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, back in the Old Testament. And for those that care to know, I am up to uh, Psalm chapter 1. I was able to finish the book of Job last night, and my goal is to read the entire Bible through in a month. And it's been a great blessing, and yet it's also been quite a battle. It's not difficult to find time to read the scripture. It's difficult to discipline oneself and to enjoy reading a lot of material. Now, on average, it's taken me around three hours a day to read 44 pages. More than I thought, like twice as long as I thought. So what I'm going to say to people who want to join me is don't bother now. It's too late in the month. You'll never catch up. What you may want to do is perhaps next month start by reading 22 pages a day. Much easier, much more uh, natural, more comfortable, and that will give you around probably an hour and a half a day. So if you can, this isn't mandatory. You're not going to be punished for not doing this. You're not some bad person for not doing this. But if you can, if you can make, say, 90 minutes a day, seven days a week, to attempt to read 22 pages a day, you'll read the entire Bible through in two months. But if you are reading along with me, and I know some of you are, and you are doing well, and you have made it to, let's see, uh, Psalm chapter 1 today. Keep going. Keep going. Such a blessing indeed. But Deuteronomy 32, there's an interesting uh, scripture here which kind of feeds into the vine and the wine press of the earth. And from Deuteronomy 32, look at verse 31, please. For their rock is not as our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. For their rock, like Simon Peter, is not as our rock, Jesus Christ. Even our enemies themselves being judges. Look at 32. For their vine is of the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is a poison of dragons and the cool venom of asps. It's a picture of the mass, of course. Go back to Revelation chapter 14. You are told also from Revelation 14, verse 8, how Babylon is fallen and is fallen, that great city. Not nation, not country, but that great city, like Rome, like Vatican City. Because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of a fornication. Spiritually, of course, and yet it isn't impossible to suggest that there is a physical connotation to this. But what I'm trying to do is pull these verses together and stay on track without deviating and make the case that part of the judgment which is going to fall on the earth is going to involve the Catholic Church. The Mass is a dangerous fable, a blasphemous deceit. And that term came from the mouth of Protestants for centuries. But now Protestants are very much in bed with the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is very much calling the shots. And that's why the Lord zooms in on Jezebel, chapter 2, and 14.8, this great city, Vatican City, and chapter 17, which is called Mystery Babylon. But I don't want to go off script too much. So Revelation 14, Revelation 14, 19 again, please. And the angel thrust in a sickle into the earth, and gathered a vine of the earth, and cast it unto the great winepress of the wrath of God. 
I'm going to say this, that the more I read this, I am probably of the opinion, and I will say this now on record, that when Christ comes back, this slaughter is going to take place outside of Jerusalem, outside of the camp, and as such, it's going to probably involve 200 million people. But let's keep reading on, not through yet. Verse 20 from Revelation 14, please. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. So what you've got is this. You've got around three foot high of blood. You've got an area of around 160 miles. So the equivalent would be from Manchester to Birmingham. So from Manchester to Birmingham, around 160 miles, which takes around an hour and ten minutes in the train, you've got three foot of blood. You've got the horse bridles going through this blood, and you've got the feet of the Lord, you've got the uh, knee area of the Lord, the ankle of the Lord, or up until his loins, if you will, covered with blood. And I don't really know how else to explain that. I guess if you could picture a horse going from A to B, with a rider on the horse, of course, going through uh, muddy terrain, going through rivers, going through areas where there's been a lot of rain and when I go to the open air pulpits when I come home I'm normally covered with mud I've got mud on my shoes I've got mud sometimes around my ankle area because it's very muddy up at the open air pulpit but if I were to take that mud and apply it to blood it gives you some idea so for 160 miles three foot of blood is going to be all over the place for people to see from Manchester to Birmingham. I hope that makes sense to you. And the wine press was trodden without the city outside of Jerusalem. And blood, and I mean blood, came out of the wine press. So Jesus Christ is stamping on people. He is demolishing people. He is literally walking over people, even under the horse bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. So if you get a chance, go on to Google Maps sometime or yahoo maps and just work out from jerusalem where that would give you or from jerusalem say 160 miles from jerusalem and see what areas that would be covering but for the uk if i was to attempt to give you the equivalent i guess i would say it'd be the equivalent of manchester to birmingham go to isaiah 63 isaiah 63 what we are reading this morning is an awful description of what the Lord is going to do to people that reject him. It's going to be bad enough missing the boat, as they say. It's bad enough dying without Christ and going to hell forever, and I mean forever. But before you go to hell, this is what awaits you. Isaiah 63, look at verse 1, please. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Boza? This that is glorious in his apparel. Travelling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness. Mighty to save. You've got two things there. Who is this that cometh from Edom? This is Isaiah speaking about the Messiah. With dyed garments from Bozrah. This that is glorious in his apparel. Travelling in the greatness of his strength. But watch this. I that speak in righteousness. Mighty to save. That's Christ speaking. Wherefore thou art red in thine apparel. And thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat. 
His garments are covered in blood. I have trodden the winepress alone. And of the people there were none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger. And trample them in my fury. And their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments. And I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart. And the year of my redeemed is come. Now Christ comes the first time to die for the sins of the world. He doesn't need anyone to help him. That's made very clear from Hebrews 1, 2, and 3, like Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2, 3, and 4. He purged our sins by himself. He sat down on the right hand of the majesty by himself. He doesn't need anyone to help him when it comes to saving the souls of people. And that includes Mary and the Mass. And here, for I will tread them in mine anger, this is Jesus speaking, 700 B.C., and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment, for the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the day of my redeemed has come. And yet people completely overlook this, people play this down, people refuse to listen to the preaching of the gospel. Go to Jeremiah, I'm not quite through yet, Jeremiah 25 Jeremiah 25, and if you will, look at verse uh, 30, please. Therefore prophesy thou against them all these words, and say unto them, The Lord shall roar from on high, and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He shall mighty roar upon his habitation. He shall give a shout, as they that tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. He's going to roar like the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's waited for thousands of years. He sent preacher after preacher. He sent the apostles, and all but one were put to death. He has sent preachers over the last 2,000 years to preach the gospel. Some have been put to death. Some have been mocked and ridiculed. And some have been pushed back. And here, my holy habitation, Jerusalem, is going to roar from on high as they that tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. I think you get the analogy. Uh, go to... Joel chapter 1 and like I say to understand the New Testament you have to go to the Old Testament and to understand the Old Testament you have to go to the New Testament the two books are very much written in such a way that you can't get along without the other you can't understand one without the other Joel chapter 1 look at verse 15 please alas for the day for the day of the Lord is at hand and as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. People are going to be massacred left, right, and center. This bloodbath is going to cover a period of around, or I should say an area of around 160 miles. One reference Bible that I looked at suggested it will cover a period of 200 miles. So a difference of 40 miles. Which would be from Manchester to probably Oxford, I would imagine. Go to Nahum. Nahum, a very... Small book, overlooked by many people, spelt N-A-H-U-M, Nahum. Back at the uh, back end of the Old Testament, and all these books are put together to really underscore the point that God is angry. The Bible says how he is angry with the wicked every day. The Bible says how he hates all workers of iniquity. The Bible speaks about Christ coming back to put down evildoers and if you miss the boat as i say you will suffer 
eternal consequences. And on top of that, you will get no uh, joy, you'll get no satisfaction, and uh, like I said before, there are many routes uh, into hell, but not one out. Nahum, N-A-H-U-M, a very obscure book. Look at verse 2, please, from chapter 1. God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth, and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. Why is he angry? Well, for many reasons. He's angry because people don't preach the gospel. He's angry because people preach another gospel. And he's angry because people love sin rather than light. So you've got many things there. An angry God, a jealous God, waiting to take vengeance on his adversaries, his enemies. And yet Paul would tell you over in the book of Romans that whilst we were enemies of the Lord, whilst we were without strength, Christ died for us. But these passages are addressed at those that hate God, those that have rejected him. One last time, God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm. And the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebuketh the sea, and maketh it dry, and drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth, and Carmel, and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. The mountains quake at him, and the hills melt. And the earth is burned at his presence, yea, the world, and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. Go back to Revelation and I will close. So, as always, a crash course in the book of Revelation. And I hope my explanation has been satisfactory. Uh, Revelation 14, 20 verses. And I will close in verse 20 from Revelation chapter 14. And the winepress was trodden without the city. And blood came out of the winepress even unto the horse bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. 160 miles, three foot deep, or three foot high, blood of Jews and Gentiles from Jerusalem and out, so from Manchester to Birmingham. Christ will stamp on these people, he will stomp on these people, and their blood will cover his garments. He will be covered in blood, but not the blood that saves. This is the blood that damns. This is why it's so imperative to get the blood of Christ put to your account. And again, I take these verses literally. I'm not so foolish as to spiritualize them, but I'm over time and I will leave you with that. And if necessary, maybe return next week and pull some of these verses uh, together. But I think you've got the gist of what I'm trying to get across. And again, if you get time, go to chapter 19 to really drill in, to get more light to this awful description of death and destruction. It's like a horror story, and yet very much overlooked and neglected by so-called Christendom.